that we pray always, this prayer, we call it the prayer of illumination. Illumination that God, His Holy Spirit, would open our eyes. There are times when I pray it, sometimes we pray it together. We have a prayer here um, that I've taken from an old dead guy from the third century and cleaned up just a touch for our own language. But I think it's helpful for us to see these written out and to pray them together from time to time just so that we can use them in our own devotional lives. So as we come to the scripture, turn in your bulletin to this prayer of illumination and let us pray it together. Shine within our hearts, loving Master, the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our minds that we may comprehend the message of your gospel. Instill in us also reverence for your blessed commandments so that having conquered sinful desires, we may pursue eternal life, thinking and doing all those things that are pleasing to you. For you, Christ our God, are the light of our souls and bodies, and to you we give glory, together with your Father and your all-holy, good, and life-giving Spirit, now and forever and to the ages of ages. Amen. Turn, please, to Colossians in chapter 3. I want to read just two verses and then take up one of them. Colossians in chapter 3, please. I want to read verses 20 and 21. Hear the word of God. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. I want, if God will help me, simply to take up verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Um, and, and, and let me make some observations. In fact, all of this will be observations, application, just sort of kind of seeing what's here for us. Uh, today, we realize that this comes in a context. It comes in the context of, of Colossians. We've been working our way through the book of Colossians for some time now. And it, and it really flows out of the prayer that Paul prays in the very beginning. That they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that they, we can walk worthy of the Lord, worthy of Christ, fully pleasing to him. That's his prayer. And, and, and even as he prays that, then he lays out in this book how it is that they're to do that, the understanding that they need, and also then, then how, they're, how they're to do that. And so this is an application. He comes to this section we started in verse 18, this particular applica- of, uh, application of, of Paul's to various relationships. How are husbands and wives together to walk worthy of Christ, fully pleasing to him? He lays that out. How are families to walk worthy of Christ, fully pleasing to him? To him, in the context of relationships between children and parents. Later, he'll bring up slaves and masters in that cultural context, what we might think of as employees and employers. How can we, in our work life together, how is it that we can, we can, we can live worthy of Christ, fully pleasing to him? So it, it comes in that in that context. And you'll notice in this section, if you haven't noticed already, but in this section, Paul is laying out relationships between those who are head, have a certain measure of authority, a certain kind of authority, and those who are to submit. We saw it in the context of marriage with wives and husbands. 
We see it in this relationship between children and parents. We'll see it in, a, in, in some weeks, uh, this relationship between slaves and masters or employees and employers, if you will. So we see in each one of those contexts, God has arranged a particular design in our marriages, in our families, and in our work where there is one who is head or has some measure of authority and one who is to submit in the context of that relationship. And what's fascinating here is in each one of these situations, he speaks not only to the one who's to submit, to tell them to submit or obey in that sense, but then also to the one who is head. And in every situation, as we'll see, he speaks to the one who is head and says, essentially, don't take advantage of that situation. For, to husbands here, he says, don't be harsh with your wives. To fathers, he says, don't provoke your children. You will see to masters, he's going to tell them, how to, if you're a Christian, how it is that you treat those who work for you, your slaves in that context, how, how do you treat them in such a way that won't take advantage of that situation? Now, just by way of observation, we, we see that, that God has arranged certain relationships, best I can say, to be sort of uneven. Uneven in terms of authority, in terms of leadership in the context of that relationship. But what he tells us too is he's very concerned about the weak one. And so if you're in a position as a wife, as a worker, as a child, in any of those situations, God says, I'm looking out for you and I'll speak to the one I've placed in authority over you. I'll speak to them in some way so that they won't take advantage of this situation. At least they know that it will displease me if they take advantage of that particular situation. And so we realize that God is always concerned about the weak. God is always concerned about the disadvantaged, if you will, in that kind of context. Just an observation, just to bear in mind there. But we realize that in all of these relationships, God has designed an order. God has designed an order. There's an order in marriage. There's an order in family. There's an order in the way that we work together. He's designed an order. Head, submit, head, submit, head, submit. So there's this order. Now, why? Well, because God is orderly. It shows his relationship in the context of the Trinity. We've talked about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we've, we won't go through this again today, but we've done it in previous weeks, about how it is that the Son submits to the Father. Now the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. Equal, yes. God, yes. All deserving of honor and glory and worship. And yet one submits voluntarily, joyfully, trustingly to the other, if you will. And, and that's the image. Of, and that's God. And so we who are created in the image of God reflect order. God is not a God of chaos, the scripture tells us, but a God of order. We see that order in creation. We see it every day, the order that God has made, this relationship between work and rest. We see it every week as God gives us this cycle of seven days, six to work, one to rest. And so we see the order in that context. We see order in the church where God has placed elders to, to govern the church, if you will, to oversee the life and ministry of the church. And people in the context of the church and the body of Christ are commanded to, to obey their leaders, to submit to leaders. And so we see that kind of order there. Uh, we see it everywhere that we look in, and we see it in the context of marriage relationship. We see it in the context of work relationship. We see it in the context of of parents and children, this context of, of order. 
And, and, and if you've been following the gist as Paul's been making his case here, he's been laying out how it is that we're to live worthy of Christ, something that's very important to him is that we live together in peace. You remember this expression, verse 15 in chapter 3. Paul says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. See, peace among God's people is a very important thing to him. And it isn't this sort of inner peace, we're all feeling good about this. It isn't that so much. It's the peace that Christ died to achieve among us. That we would live together in harmony. That we would live together peaceably. And so God says, no, no, here's a way to do that. Not only a way, but the way to do that. In marriage, husbands and wives. Husbands, head, wives, submit, brings peace. Well, it could bring a great deal of difficulty, couldn't it? But, but God says, no, 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 it won't. Because I'm going to put you in a relationship of love. So husbands, what it means to be head is love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So your headship isn't this rule of a great authority with an iron fist, but it's to love her. And to do that which is best for her well-being, to give yourself for that. Oh, yes, you have the authority in the context of your family life and your marriage. But, but I want you to practice it in, in, in love. And so everyone loves here. Everyone's thinking of the other all the time. Husbands must always be thinking of their wives if they're going to love their wives as Christ loved the church. For Christ is always thinking of the church. He's always thinking of our well-being. He's always thinking of what he can do to, 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 to help us, if you will. He intercedes for us all the time. And so husbands would be like that. And wives are to submit. That is, they're to think of the well-being of their husbands all the time. How can I love them, respect them, follow them? Same thing with children and parents. It's a relationship of love. Children obey your parents, but parents love your children. Don't provoke them. Don't exasperate them as the old language would be. Don't provoke them to wrath as the old King James had it in Ephesians in chapter 6. You see, it's a relationship of love. Not one taking advantage of the other. Not one being a doormat for the other, but the two together living together in love in this orderly kind of way. And so there's harmony, so there's peace. And so it isn't ruled by committee, but it's ruled by head who loves as God loves. And so we see this sense of, sense of order. And in all of this too, it's, it's helpful for us because it helps us to know what a family really is. Now families are different. There are families with one parent because of death or divorce or child born without both parents. We understand that. But when we think about what family really is and our culture struggles to define what a family is, the Bible just simply lays it out. It's this relationship of mom and dad and kids. That's this context of family. Now, as I said, that the family changes over time. It could be a mom without a father, a father without a mother because of death, sometimes because of divorce, sometimes various kinds of situations, and children grow up and leave. But there's, a, there's still this sense, you see, that's what family really is. It isn't for us to define. It's for God to define. And, and this is how he lays it out. We see it in creation. We see it uh, in Genesis chapter 2 where God says that a man should leave his father and mother be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. God had given the command that, that men and women are to join together to, to, to be fruitful and multiply. 
Well, you read that in Genesis chapter 1. When you get to Genesis chapter 2, you get to this point of the two becoming one flesh. Well, what does that mean? It means that you're supposed to take dominion. That wasn't a twitch. That was just to, just to be cute. Uh, you know, you're supposed to take dominion and you're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. How do you do that? Well, you become one flesh. A man and a woman together. That's this sense of family. That's what it is. That's how God lays it out. That's how he defines it. It isn't us to redefine it or, or to think through it. Now, interestingly, in our culture, we can sort of try to make this different because, because of our wealth and because of our technology. You can artificially, if you will, outside of the normal means of becoming one flesh, uh, have a child. Uh, you can have enough money to where you can sort of rent out the other partner if you need to and, and, and get in help to, to help you in the context of raising this child. And so we think because of the ease with which we have it that we can raise children in a way differently than God has laid out for us. And we think we can be self-sufficient. And so it becomes confusing to us. And so every segment of our society is trying to figure out what a family really is. Business is trying to do it for health benefits and pension benefits. Government is trying to do it because in every uh, election, uh, politicians can either be um, elected or not, depending on their understanding of, of family. In the context of schools, educators are trying to figure out what is a family here really and how do we, how do we really address that in the context of our lives, one community has simply said that, a fam- that we take families as they come. We let them define themselves. And that's all well and good, but what are you going to do when there's four adults and one child? Why just two? Well, there's seven adults and six children, and you say, this is our family, this is how we're going to do it. <gasps> okay. Is that what we're going to say? But as we read through this passage, we realize that the understanding, the biblical understanding, God's understanding of what a family really is, mom and dad and kids. That's how this works its way out. Now you'll also notice here as we're working our way through this is that Paul, the apostle, addresses directly the children. He doesn't say, mom and dad tell your kids... He says, children, what does that mean? Well, I mean, Paul expects children to take up the scriptures, to be listening to it. That it's for them, not just for adults, but it's for children too. Kids who are here. Got kids in another part of the church listening to this same kind of thing. But kids realize that Paul is saying, this Bible is for you. Because when Paul was writing scripture, he knew what it was. He knew that it was God-breathed. He knew that it was the very word of God. And so Bible is for kids. Because in Bible, kids are directly addressed as if they're to be part of the covenant community. They're to be part of the community of hearers. They're to be part of the, of, of the church, if you will. And so he says, children, listen to this. Now, that's an amazing thing, how honoring it is to kids For God to be saying, listen up, I've got something to tell you directly. Now you may not like what he tells you directly, but he tells you this directly. And so all of this is for kids, not just this sentence, but everything else that's here should be given to our kids. In fact, that was so evident uh, in ancient Israel, or was to be evident in ancient Israel, that, that 
the psalmist in Psalm 78 could write like this, speaking to children. He writes, uh, we will not hide them, that is, all this, all this uh, stuff that God has given to us. We will not hide them from our children, but we will tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob, meaning he's established a testimony among our people. So as a church, we should be able to say God has established a testimony in our church. God has established a testimony throughout history for his people. He's established the testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children so that they, and the they there is children, so that the children should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And so children are to listen to the scripture. Children are to read as they're able to read. Children are to read the scripture because it's directed to them as well. I don't think it's just an adult thing, a grown-up thing. It's, it's for children as well. And the reason that it's for children as well is so that the kids, as well as everyone else, can hope, not in themselves, but hope in God. It's that significant, that important. Notice, too, that that Paul changes the language a bit here from verse 18 to verse 20. Wives were to submit to their husbands. Children are to obey their parents in everything. And so it's as if he sort of ups the stakes a bit. And, And that's because of the relationship. Husbands and wives are both adults. Husbands and wives are both maturing in Christ. And so it isn't a matter of wife obeying husband in that childlike sense. But when we talk about parents and children, that's a different kind of relationship. Just because of the nature of the, of the, of the people involved, the nature of youngsters, the nature of, 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 of adults. And so children are to take very directly what their parents say to obey it. Now, just like every bit of obedience, children's obedience to parents is not absolute. The only obedience that's absolute is to God. So that if parents are commanding their children to do that which is sin, children should not do that. So children, don't lie for your parents. Don't steal for them. By the mercies of God. Don't be sexually intimate with them. Because that would be sin. Sadly, many children were not told that growing up. And even if they were told, were in situations of power of their parents and thus could not withstand their parents. But it isn't for children to submit in areas of, of sin. On a bit lighter topic, I also tell children, when your mom and dad say it's okay for you to play baseball and skip worship on Sunday, perhaps you should say, really? 
I mean, wouldn't it surprise you if you're a kid and you've been going to church since you were a baby and all of a sudden now that you're 11, they say, oh yeah, we can skip church so you can play a game? I, kid, that should, the kid should go, really? Is that safe for me, Dad, to, to do that? Oh. So talk to them about that just in case. They want you to do that. Really work on that one. It's not absolute. But they are to obey, obey in everything. It's serious, obviously. So serious that the fifth commandment that we read this morning is that children are to obey their parents. Isn't it interesting that when God sits out to write ten words, as it's described in the Old Testament, ten words, God lays out ten words. One of those words is to children. And one of those words is the children are to obey their parents. And not only that, but if you look at the the way the Ten Commandments are organized, you find that the first four deal most directly with this vertical relationship with God. And and, and, and the the last six, five through ten, deal with this horizontal relationship with one another. You know, don't have any other gods before me, don't make any images, Uh, Don't take my name blasphemously or in vain. Uh, Obey the Sabbath. Those kinds, honor the Sabbath, those. And then the fifth one, the one right after the the list concerning this vertical relationship with God, that fifth one is, is to children, to obey your parents. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why that order is, but, but as we study the scripture, we find these orders are not uh, necessarily just sort of arbitrary, but they have some sense to them. Why would, he, why would you think, again, this is Bill, not Bible, so just take it like that, but, but why would you think this one comes first? Could it not be that it's foundational to all the others in the context of God's order in our lives? You see, if children can learn to obey parents, will they not be less likely to murder, less likely to commit adultery, less likely to steal, to lie, to cover those kinds of things? Why? We'll see in a minute. Because this relationship with our parents, as we learn to obey them, influences, affects how we relate to God. It influences and affects how we relate to God. And so we see all of these, these, these kinds of things. God very, very um, serious about children and parents. And so let me just shock you for a minute. Um, Leviticus in chapter 20. In verse 9. Let me read verse 7. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or mother. His blood is upon him. Then turn to Deuteronomy in chapter 21. verse 18 if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother although they discipline him and will not listen to them 
Then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear and fear. In Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 16. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. I read that and just, how could that be? What does that really mean? Well, a number of things. Number one, we need to understand that all of the that offenses against all of the Ten Commandments are capital offenses. They all resulted in death in some way in ancient Israel. Secondly, however, to realize that in ancient Israel, there was real justice. And so this wasn't cavalier, this wasn't arbitrary, this wasn't, oh, my kid said he wouldn't clean up his room, so let's kill him. It wasn't like that. They brought him to the, to the elders and they, they made their case. This disobedience was threatening this disobedience, was cursing of parents. This disobedience was, was threatening to their well-being in such a way that, that if, if it went on, it was likely they would die at some sense of the hand of their child. And so think of that. This wasn't arbitrary, it wasn't cavalier. But it says how foundational, how important obedience is to parents. And we don't do that now. And the reason we don't follow that particular command now is because we're not ancient Israel. There's a difference between ancient Israel is what's called a theocracy and the church. A theocracy is a nation whose, God, whose, whose king is directly God. And thus, any offense is an offense against God. So any offense is treason against the king and thus could be punishable by death. The church isn't a theocracy in that sense. It's a theocracy in the sense that we're, that we're a community, that we're a kingdom of priests, if you will, unto God, and, and that he is our God. And that any offense against him, not forgiven by the blood of Christ, will ultimately lead to eternal death. But we don't have the power of the sword. Ancient Israel had the power of the sword. There was a, was a government that was not only, not only what we would call religious, but also political. Not only religious, but civil. And so, so their laws govern them in such a way that offenses against, against God could, be, could result in the death of the offender, the physical death of the offender. Whereas in the context of the church, since we don't have the right of sword, uh, our extreme punishment is excommunication. Which, by the way, should strike more fear into the heart of a person than physical death. But we don't kill physically. That isn't ours to do. Our children or anyone else. But again, to see the seriousness of disobedience. Romans chapter 1. Beginning with verse 18, this is a passage where God says, where Paul writes that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. 
And he talks then about how it is that people turn away from God. And he speaks then of how when people turn away from God, a judgment upon them is for God to give them up to their own sins. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, and so forth and so on, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Then verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind or a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And so, again, all these lists here, lists of of what what we would normally consider to be despicable things, those things which people do when they have no mind at all for God, when when he isn't putting his restraining hand against them at all to keep them from these despicable sins. Verse 28. They were filled with all manner of unrighteous evil, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. There are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That's huge. It's foundational in the context of our life with God to begin as children to obey parents. Then 2 Timothy in chapter 3 and verse 2. Let me read verse 1. But understand this. Then in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Disobedience to parents. Why? Why is that in there? Why is that such a dramatic, drastic kind of sin? Well, I think this. That it really does impact the way that we relate to God. Oh, yeah, it impacts in the context of our culture as well. There's a, social, social, there's a certain social aspect of this. You remember in that, that fifth commandment, God says, Children, honor your parents so that it may go well with you, so that you may live long in the land. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody who dies young did so because they were disobedient to their parents. Or everybody that lives a uh, long life means that they were obedient to their parents. We understand this sort of general kind of statement. Jesus died at 33-ish and yet obeyed his parents perfectly, obviously. Uh, and there were good ones who died young. But this sense of if foundationally children obeying parents, then it goes well with the people. It goes well with the community. God blesses. We live well. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a world in which the Ten Commandments were real? You know, we think of these commandments of those things that, that God puts upon us to restrain us, but it's not that at all. Could you imagine a world where children obeyed parents, where there was no murder, where there was no adultery, 
where there was no lying, where there was no stealing, where there was no coveting what the other had, but rather being happy for it. Could you imagine a world like that? It's called glory. It's called the new earth. It's called the place where the people of God dwell for all eternity. It isn't to restrain, but, but, but if, you, if, if a politician would run on this platform, I can bring this, well, he would lose because of the adultery. But other than that, people would generally be in favor of it in our culture. But this sense that the children are to honor their parents. Now, we understand there's this distinction between honor and obey. Honor includes obey. Obey includes honor, most especially. And we understand that when, when we're talking about children in this context in Colossians 3, we're talking about children, not adult children, but, but children, children. And, and, and there comes this sort of fuzzy line of when do you move from that line of, of being right under this commandment, children, obey your parents and everything. And, and honor... And I'll leave that for you all to work through in the relationship of your, of your own kids. Uh, so we understand that, but, but we get what's here. The children very seriously are to obey their parents. Why? Because it lays a foundation of how we will relate to God. Now, oftentimes when we think about the relationship between parents and kids and how we relate to God, we think of it from the parental sense. And there is a truth about the parental sense wherein we relate to God often in the same way that we sort of, our parents related to us. And because God is an authority, our parents are authority, and if our fathers treated us well, then we perhaps have a better sense about who God is. And if our fathers didn't treat us well, then perhaps we have this twisted view about who God is, and we have to overcome that twisted view. But we also have to overcome the good view as well, because the truth of the matter is, God's way better than the best dad. And so all of us have to rethink this idea of God. But, but, but certainly there is this very natural sense, and it's probably a, a God-ordained sense, that parents are to do well by their kids so that kids have a good sense about what a loving father is, a good sense about what a providing father is, a good sense about what a caring father is, so that when we read that in the Scripture, uh, we have a good sense and we're drawn to God, if you will. But we really have to know about God as a father on his own terms so that we really get it. So don't, get, don't, let, don't let your dad stop you on either side of that, either because he was good or because he wasn't good. Get a sense of who God is as father. But that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about children obeying parents and everything. For this pleases the Lord. Because you see, that's one of the places, kids, where you grow up to learn how to relate to the authority of God, to learn how to trust Him. Kids, do you ever have trouble trusting your parents? Adults, did you ever have trouble trusting your parents growing up? Why is that? Because you worried about whether or not they really had your best interest in mind. And you were convinced of it when they would say things like, oh, you can't go to that dance. And you'd say, oh, that's not right. If you wanted me to be happy 
you'd say, yes, you can go to that. Or you really can't have that. Or you really can't do this. Or you really must do that. Or mustn't do this other thing. And as kids, we would think, wait a minute. If you really loved me, you wouldn't be saying that. And so we wondered, did our parents really have our best interest in mind? Can we really trust them? Now, I understand some parents weren't trustworthy. I'm not talking about that. But God is trustworthy, and so we learn to trust him by trusting our parents. Parents understand that. But we learn to trust him by trusting our parents. And also, kids, do your parents ever ask you to do things, command you to do, th- do things that you really don't want to do? Like clean your room, or do your homework, or eat your peas, or dress modestly. Or not hang around with a particular person or group of people. Not go to particular events. Not do certain kinds of things. And of course the answer is yes. Yeah, there's all kinds of things that, 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 that parents have asked us to do. Commanded us to do that, that were uncomfortable for us. We can remember back as adults and times like that. And, kids. and the question is how do you respond to that? As a kid, how do you respond to that? As, as an adult, how did you respond to that as a kid? Uh, there's various ways. One, you can just sort of out, outright rebel and just say no, I'm going to do what I want. Maybe that you yell back. It may be that you're a bit more subtle with that. You just give the look. It may be that you try to negotiate your way around it in some particular way. Uh, give a little, take a little, try to make it work for you in your best interest, how you would really like it to come out. It could be that you simply subtly, quietly listened and ignored it, really. Because when you were there, your parents weren't. So how would they know if you were doing that or not doing that? And so just sort of appeased them by listening, smiled a bit, tried to be a good kid in all the other areas, and then maybe you'd be able to slide by in this area. Or it could be that you obeyed on the outside, but on the inside were very resentful that you had to be doing what they asked you to do. As I look back as as an adult, I realize that I respond to God in the same way that I responded to my parents when they asked me, commanded me to do things that I didn't think I should do. Well, sometimes I did them because I trusted them in in a certain regard, and and that seemed to make sense, but other times it didn't, and there were times when I just simply rebelled, times I just simply didn't do it, other times when when, when I tried to negotiate my way around it, other times this was sort of my MO, as my mother tells me and my father tells me now, and I had one kid who this was their MO as well, and so I knew it, um... Much to his chagrin. But this sense of being as good a kid as I possibly could be in all the other areas so that when they told me to do certain kinds of things, we'd kind of listen to that. But it would be a part of the list, but it wouldn't be anything I would highlight uh, with them. And I would just sort of let that one slide, figuring if I did 8 out of 10, then they'd be cool with the other two. And they wouldn't kind of come down so hard on me uh, on those other kinds of, on those particular kinds of kinds of matters and then sometimes you just did it because you had to because it was going to be pain too painful not to but you resented every minute of it and isn't that how we respond to God comes to us and says trust me and we want to say well I don't know 
I don't know if I can. I don't know if you have my best interests in mind, really, because I see what happens in the world. I, I see, yes, I, I'll trust you with my health, but people die. I'll trust you with my job, but people lose them. I'll, I'll trust you with my, with, with my life, but there are lonely people out there, even in the body of Christ. And so I'm not sure. I really want to trust you. And he says, well, trust me. I know what's best for you, my child. The relationship between us and God is more like the relationship between parent and child than it is between husband and wife or employee and employer. He really is our master. He really is God. One of the reasons I I use this prayer of uh, illumination by uh, John uh, Chrysostom from the 4th century is because we don't always call God our loving master. I read that and I said, we call him Lord, but that's kind of cleaned up English, you know, we, we kind of have a way, but master, we don't, that, that makes it sound like I'm a slave, oh, his servant, master. So, this sense of, of yes, he, he is the Lord, and, and he says, trust me, can I really do that? We learn, even as children, about trust. If your situation with your parents was bad, then you have to relearn that in the context of the loving father to understand who he is, to be able to trust him through these things also. Then as he commands us, how do we respond? Do we rebel? Just turn away. Do we negotiate? Do we sort of listen and, and do what we want in hopes that will be enough and not really follow him in all the details of our lives? Jerry Bridges just wrote a profound book called respectable sins and these things that sins that aren't necessarily respectable but sort of all, all the ones that we sort of let each other get away with that we just kind of do because because well if you don't tell on me I won't tell on you and, and we pretty much have this down so but let's just they become very socially acceptable things we listen to God say don't do that or live this way and yeah 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 we don't turn to that and just like kids right and other times we do it, but boy, we're angry about it. Just grit our teeth. I'm doing this because I'm a Christian. <laughs> but you're not doing it like a Christian, right? Not like a follower of Christ. So what do we do? What do we do in that context? Kids, let me tell you this. Adults, listen in. When you're in a situation where you have to trust your parents, when you're in a situation where your parents are telling you stuff to do and you don't want to do it, and you feel that burn inside like, ah, I, don't, I don't really want to do that, then let that teach you something about yourself. That you're a sinner. Allow it to teach you that. Now, as it's teaching you that, remember, look at your parents and say, well, they are too, and you'd be right. Okay, so you're not unique in this. Don't think, oh, man, I'm the only kid that ever felt like this before. I must be horrible. Well, you might be, but... But you're not the only kid that ever felt that way before. Because every kid feels this way. Because we're sinners. Every adult feels this way in the context. Whatever it is your God's calling your mom and dad to do. Remember, they're feeling, they could be feeling the same kind of burn. The same kind of thing. I don't want to. They need to go to school on that. You need to be trained by this. Oh, yes, I'm a sinner. Then what do you do? Well, you could rebel against God and run, the, run your own way and just ignore him and all of that. Or you could go to him and admit it. That's called confession. Say, I get it. Okay, I know. 
Please forgive me. And, and then go to him and say, but, but, but now what? I, I'm forgiven, but would you please, Jesus, give me righteousness? One of the great things about Jesus is that he obeyed his mom and dad. He obeyed the fifth commandment. He did it. And to be able to say, oh, thank you, Jesus. You obeyed where I haven't. You wanted to obey where I don't. Thank you for that. And receive his righteousness, his goodness upon you. And then go to God and say, all right. Jesus died that I might be forgiven. He lived that I might have his goodness upon me. Please help me. Don't, don't, don't forget this step. Because you might be able to grit your teeth and do it on your own strength. And then you look back and say, oh, I'm really terrific. No. You go to that step that says, God, help me follow you. Which means obey my parents. Let me, God, help me trust you. Which means trust my parents Receive his forgiveness. Receive his strength. And then, as a follower of Christ, as one that the scripture writes to, says, you want to know the will of God for your life, kids? Key thing, obey your parents. And you say, wow, it just seems like it's hard and it's leading nowhere. That's not true at all. It's leading somewhere. Where is it leading? It's leading to grow you up. So you'd be like Jesus to grow you up so that when God really calls you in serious matters and adult matters when you're older and you have a family when you're older and you're living out your life and you're older and there are temptations that could destroy not only you but even more than just you if you followed after them then you'll have the strength of life. To follow him. Many of us as adults limp a lot because we didn't learn. We should have learned as kids. And it takes us a while, longer than it ought perhaps, to, to get this sense of trust in God and following after him. And so, children, really obey your parents. This really is pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us, that you would enable us to obey you and all that you call us to. I pray especially for the kids, God, that you would enable them to obey their parents. Pray for parents that they'd be worthy of obedience. So help us all. Father, even as we come to pray, we think of those who this day are struggling perhaps to trust you and to walk with you. And I pray for Mel and Dorothy Rains, Father, as Mel recovers. Thank you for sparing his life. Thank you for helping him this week. I pray that you would enable him, God, to continue to make progress as he awakens from his sedation. Father, for Eileen, I pray that you would be with Eileen and Scott. Thanks for the surgery this week. I pray that it brings comfort to her and rest and relieves her of pain and brings healing.
for Mamma Grogan, Father, thanks for the eye surgery that she's had. I pray that she recovers. Many, Father, are struggling with various kinds of issues, issues that could undermine faith, and I pray that you would strengthen faith, that you would cause us to trust you, to listen to you, to not turn away from you, to not rationalize or negotiate, but listen and obey. That you might be glorified, shown to be sufficient for everything. God, this we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there are elders available to pray in the office area. Uh, Please take advantage of that. And Sunday school as well. Receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together let us sing. of his grace Jesus the name that charms our fears that bids our sorrow cease tis music in the sinner's ears tis life and health and peace he breaks the power of cancelled sin he sets the prisoner can make the foulest clean His blood availed for me Hear in me deaf His praise ye dumb Your loosened tongues employ Ye blind behold Your Savior come And leave ye lame for joy My gracious Master and my God Assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. To spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name.